you have your Bibles, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, it is, I think, a joy every time we come to the beginning of a book and every time we come to the end of a book, kind of as a monument, if you will, of where we've been and where we're going. And I want to read rather quickly Nehemiah chapter 13 because the way we're going to work through the passage today is not the typical way we work through the passage. Uh, we're going to kind of jump around in Nehemiah 13. We will eventually cover it all, but I want to Read it so you hear it, see it, uh, and then we're going to kind of jump around as we work through it. All right, so let's, let's begin verse 13, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 1, all the way through 30, the end of the book. All right, so on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now real quick, just as for narrative sense here, this writing, 13, 1 through 3, is actually happening at the end of the chapter. Like it's happening after everything now that we're getting ready to read. So if you look in verse 4, it says, now before this, right? So that's the narrative cue that what's now getting ready to happen happened before verses 1, 2, and 3, okay? So now starting in verse 4, which is really where in a few moments I'm going to start with teaching, is going to be in verse 4. We'll come back to verses 1, 2, and 3 later today. Maybe this afternoon sometime, you know. Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, the wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I, that's Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year, sorry, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and then discovered the evil that Eliashim had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given them given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, off, the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah, uh, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Padaiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. 
And do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grape, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians or Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath days. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and, and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Then I cleansed them from everything foreign. And I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And he says, remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray. Father, sweet. To look at these words and reminded of our propensity to sin further, even sin having committed, and it's simply a reminder that our righteousness, our doing cannot be found, the strength to do it cannot be found within ourselves. But it ultimately comes from your graciousness. But even your graciousness upon us 
to live the way you've called us to only comes as it passes through the blood of your son Jesus who did this perfectly. So Father, as we <coughs> study these words, Father, I pray that they would, they would encourage us to, to follow hard after you, Father, and depend even harder on the blood of your son Jesus and your graciousness through him. Father, make us into the people you've called us to be. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning, we're going to talk about the idea of confrontation. Confrontation. Humanity, this side of eternity, necessitates confrontation. Humanity, this side of, of glory, necessitates confrontation. So long as there is sin in the world, there will always be a need for some measure of confrontation. Now here's just some observations about confrontation. First of all, no one likes to do it. If you do, you're twisted, okay? right? I have a personality that is more prone to be confrontational, and yet I do not like it. It's still not fun. Maybe there are people who like it. I do not. It's not fun. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. We're oftentimes afraid of whether or not someone will receive it. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of reasons for, our, for why it's uncomfortable. I'm also sure that we've all been involved in some kind of confrontation that was altogether ungodly. I mean, maybe some truth was spoken, but the situation maybe was completely ungodly. There was oftentimes a sea in confrontation that people do it ultimately just to serve themselves like they are doing this they want to confront something in you but it's not for the right reasons it's just for their good for their comfort for what makes them feel good oftentimes you see people that are involved in confrontation and they're sinfully angry that's usually i mean most common i think i see people confronting someone it's often driven from anger and probably not righteous anger many times. <clears throat> I think also we don't like to do confrontation because we don't understand what's at stake in the other person's life or even in our own life. So just a few reasons for why maybe we avoid confrontation. Now, on the other hand of this, no one likes to receive confrontations. Anyone here like to receive confrontation? Probably not. I don't. I don't like it. I mean, I, I think it's for sinful reasons. I don't like it, but, but I don't like it. Nevertheless, it's not comfortable. Sometimes it's, it's probably always painful. A lot of times I don't like it because I just don't understand the gospel. I don't understand the words of this text. I don't many things, but we don't like it sometimes because we s- simply don't understand what is going on. Like, I think a lot of times we don't like confrontation, like being confronted about our sin, because we think we're so like we're so wrapped up in performance-based salvation and self-righteousness that now I've sinned and so I'm being confronted, and because I've messed up, now it's just all hell's breaking loose, right? It stinks, it's terrible. And I forget that my righteousness is not wrapped up in my doing, but in Christ's having done. Like, that's where my righteousness is. 
But I, now I live in light of that. So, but, but because for a brief moment I'm confronted and I think this is all based on my doing. It's uncomfortable. It's not fun. A lot of times we don't think we need it all together. So we don't like to receive it because we don't think we need it. I'm good. I don't sin that much. The reality is, though, we all need it. Like, we all desperately need confrontation when it comes to our sin. We all need it desperately. I wanted to do a thorough treatment of depravity at this point in the sermon, but all of chapter 13 wouldn't allow us to do that. But we desperately need people to remove the log in their own eye so that they can go help remove the speck in a brother or sister's eye. We desperately need that. I want to read to you an excerpt from Jonathan Edwards. I'm going to read a few of them today. But he says this, It appears that man's nature is greatly depraved by an apparent proneness to an exceeding stupidity. He goes on, And those things wherein his duty and main interest are chiefly concerned. He goes, I shall instance in two things, men's proneness to idolatry and a general great disregard of eternal things. Those are the two areas that man shows his proneness to exceeding stupidity. He would also be calling this man's depravity, right? Man's proneness to sin. It's an idolatry and a disregard for eternal things. And we need, here's the deal, we need someone to confront us in our desperation. And I think if we stop viewing so much of our righteousness wrapped up in our doing and more in Christ's doing, and we see the desperation of our sinful estate, then we will see then confrontation more as a rescue mission. And if we see it as a rescue mission, then we will see it as mercy. And if we see it as mercy, then we will ultimately see it as loving. See, confrontation for believers should result in repentance, humble repentance, sincere apologies, and strengthened relationships. Professor at Southern Seminary, Dr. Hamilton, made that comment on this passage. God shows us merciful love when He confronts our sin and brings us to repentance. Confrontation, godly, gospel-centered, gospel-driven confrontation, biblical confrontation, is about showing merciful love, confronting someone in sin, bringing them to repentance. We're going to nuance that more as we go. But if this love, if it's loving, think about this with me, if it's loving for God to confront us in our sin, like what Dr. Hamilton said here, what are you refusing when you avoid or refuse his confrontation? If it's loving to be confronted, then what are you refusing when you refuse the confrontation? You're refusing God's love. 
want to encourage you if you're part of a DNA gathering that you should ask your leader if they feel like they can easily confront sin in your life. Ask your DNA leader if that is possible. If you're unwilling to ask them, then you have your answer. Okay? On the other hand, a response of humility opens the door for God's love to shine through. Right? Humility, understanding what's going on, allows God's love, mercy to penetrate through your life. Ultimately, what I want us to see is that God's confronting us is a display of His merciful love. As painful as it seems to be, as unfortunate as sin is, God's confronting us is a display of His merciful love. It tells the story of God's rescue. And I know in a culture, I, this so convicting for me this week. But in a culture, we just despise being confronted. We, we live in a culture, church, and we have to be so careful of this. We live in a culture where it's all about individual expression at the expense of anybody else. It's all about me being who I am, and who are you to tell me this is not who I can be. And it's in the church, too. It's not just in the news. It's not just in the sexual revolution that's taking place, it's in the church too. We say, who, who, how dare you? Like, who do you think you are to tell me that I've sinned? That I'm wrong? To confront me? When in reality, those of us who are redeemed followers of Jesus Christ, if God had not confronted us in our sin, we would be still be on our way to hell. Amen? It tells the story of God's rescue, and it tells the story of God's continual restoration and restoring of our hearts and our image to the image of Jesus Christ. When you see, church, when we see the depth of our sin, you will experience confrontation as merciful love. But until then, you will see confrontation as an assault on your self-righteousness. We have to see it, I think, as a rescue mission in order to see it as merciful love. But if we think everything's fine and everything's kosher, we're good to go, then it's just simply, confrontation is just simply an assault on what you're enjoying currently. My proposition is this, very simple this week. Gospel-driven confrontation still tells the story of God's marvelous rescue. Gospel-driven confrontation tells the story of God's marvelous rescue. That's what I want us to walk out of here seeing today, just simply that. I want you to see that picture here. All right, so the first thing, I'll, just again, to kind of help you follow along today, you will want, if you're taking notes, you'll want to mark what verses we're talking about, okay? Because I'm going to jump around in this passage. Again, eventually covering basically everything, but we're not going to go verse through verse. I think it'll help us a little bit better to kind of break this and handle it in different sections. So first of all, the root of our problem 
is idolatry. The root of our problem is idolatry. At the very least, it's expressed in idolatry. Another quote from Jonathan Edwards, Puritan preacher, for those of you who don't know who Jonathan Edwards is. He says this, It is manifest in the first instance that man's nature in its present state is attended with a great propensity to forsake the acknowledgement and worship of the true God and to fall into the most stupid idolatry. I like his stupid, right? It's awesome. Because it really is. It's just foolish and dumb, but we so are guilty of it. The sins that you and I can visibly see almost always certainly display a greater reality that is, prob- that is spiritual. The sins that we see physically, this, that what we see out here is, is just telling the story of something that's deeper inside our hearts. You see, intermarrying, marrying those who were unrepentant, right? Don't think necessarily race. I don't think that's the point ultimately here, but marrying unrepentant people, marrying unrepentant people has become a problem once again in the camp of God's people. It was a problem, again, because it tells of a spiritual reality and a physical picture, a physical display of a deep-rooted idolatry. I think we see that in verses 4 and 5. Let's read here. Oh, I see it in more than just four and five, but it kind of tells the story. It tells the story here, church, of replacing worship of Yahweh with the worship of just anything else. I mean, you name it. They have their gods. We have our gods. <coughs> All right, so the verses four and five. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So you go, Tobiah. Who's this Tobiah? This is the Tobiah that's been here all along. This is the Tobiah that's been taunting the kingdom of God. This is the Tobiah you remember Tobiah and Sanballat. Sanballat will come later in, this, in, the, in chapter 13. But right now we're talking about Tobiah. And what we have here is that the priest is now related to Tobiah. This is bad news, right? There's intermarrying now within the priesthood. And then the family of the priesthood. Now, I do want to help you think through something. There's probably been from chapter 12 to chapter 13, probably like 15 years or so. So this didn't happen overnight. I think it's encouraging. Uh, at least I think it's encouraging uh, that all of this didn't, uh, Nehemiah, they just covenanted, and now all of a sudden, like the next day, right? No, there's been, there's been some time. But nevertheless, we have this sin going on within the priesthood. So what, and then what you have now on top of uh, Eliashib and, and his relationship with Tobiah, what does he do for Tobiah? So he has the temple, these chambers, these parts of the temple had been committed in the covenant that we talked about in chapter 10. They were going to use these chambers. This was for storing 
required necessity, or for storing necessities for the worship of Yahweh. Right? The things they put in this place were there so that they could worship God. But instead, these rooms were now emptied, and in place of it, an unrepentant idolater is now housed in the place of God. Right? So what was once meant for worship of Yahweh is now being used to house an idolater. Worship of Yahweh displaced worship of idols in its place. If you think about it too, now in God's place was a foreign ruler once again. I mean, just don't think that like Tobias just needed a place to stay and now he's shacking up in the temple, right? No, like... This is a place of authority for the people of God. And Tobiah is a leader. He's just a bad, he's, he's, he's a good leader, but for the bad side, right? Now he's in the temple. Now he's in the place where God worships. Or, sorry, not God worships, but people worship God. Now, I just want to caveat just for a second. Before we talk about confrontation, we need to see that we don't just worship something other than God every once in a while. This is something we have the propensity for, I think, moment by moment every day. I don't need to insert the famous John Calvin quote here, right? Factory of idols. I heard I had someone in my sphere of influence not too long ago say, I don't really sin that much. No, we really do. It's just probably you have found a comfortable level of reflection or depth of reflection in your soul that if you venture behind that next layer it probably starts to get uncomfortable but it's comfortable at this point we've we've sinned plenty and i had to ask the question how many times in our lives does the worship of yahweh cease because it's been replaced with the worship of something else right happens all the time and this is common language for us in the church i understand now here's the question. How did, all this, how did all this come about? Look at verse 6. Well, this was taking place. Right? So while the removing of the things necessary for the worship of God was being taken out and Tobiah was being put in its place, while that was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I was asked leave of the king. Or I asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. It just happens while Nehemiah is gone. And this is what we need to understand in confrontation, both as a giver and a receiver. Because this is what this is what's happened. What, all we're doing right now in verses four, five, and six is seeing what's the problem. The problem is the people of God don't want to worship God; they want to worship something else. So all we're doing right now is establishing the problem, and the confrontation is going to come. But we need to understand in confrontation, both as givers and receivers, is that in most, if not every sin, there is something else being worshipped other than God. The person right, that's being confronted, or you who are being confronted, you're beholding something else other than God. Something else has gripped your heart. You found something else that for a season seems more glorious than the creator of the universe, the father of the living. 
you know, Matt Papa in his new book talks about like in justification, I think this is helpful, like justification is the seeing the cross, is the turning to see the cross. And then the idea of living that out is now daily beholding the cross. That daily loving the cross and, and loving Christ. And I, I, think, I think that that's a helpful thought. What we do often, though, is we, even though we've seen the cross and we love Jesus, we begin to behold other things daily. As we think about this confrontation, again, those who are delivering the confrontation, here, here's what I want to encourage you. You must be driven by conviction and affection for the glory of God. That's what we see with Nehemiah here. If you're going to confront someone and you're not driven by deep conviction and affection for the glory of God, then stop. Right? Be driven by that. Be driven by that. Because if your motivation for confronting a person in their sin is for anything other than greater worship of God, then it's probably nothing more than legalism or self-righteousness. And so I think we're going to talk about it later, but Jesus' words to remove the log in your own eye is so helpful. And just to remind us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all what? To the glory of God, right? All right. So all we've just done, just really just talk about what is the problem. The problem is we want to worship something other than God. We don't recognize God as God. We recognize something else as God. It's what's going on in this picture. The people of God don't want to be the people of God. They want to be the people of this gold idol. They want to be the people of Tobiah. They want to be the people of whatever other than God. All right, so next thought here as we work through this passage is that conviction and affection for the glory of God drives gospel-centered confrontation. I think it's very evident that Nehemiah is driven by his conviction and affection for the glory of God. He desires the glory of God. It's what's been driving this whole book. That God's name would be glorified among the nations. That God's people would glorify God's name. It's been driving Nehemiah from the beginning. I want you to notice a few things so far. I'm sorry, in verse 8 and 9. Notice the righteous indignation. Notice the righteous anger of Nehemiah. Look in verse 8. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now, a couple comments real quick. It was good and right for Nehemiah to respond this way. So we all tend to think, oh, anger, it's never good. In this case... Assuming Nehemiah's heart was in the right place the whole time, which is the big assumption, because he's a sinner. It would be perfectly good and right for Nehemiah to be angry and to do what he just did. Sounds pretty similar to a later event, right? Jesus found the temple had been turned into a place for traitors. He overturned the tables, dumped out bags of money, threw people out, right? 
We don't ultimately know Nehemiah's heart. There might very well have been some unrighteousness in his heart. But from the context, I, I do think it seems that what he is portraying in here is a righteous anger. At the very least, Jesus displayed a righteous anger in a very similar story. Where the house of God had been turned into a place of worship of something else other than God. A lot of people use that passage about Jesus to say we can't have a bookstore in a church. I don't think that was the point, right? Oh my gosh, you know, we're selling things in the church. What a terrible thing. No, it was the worship of something else. It's the same thing that's going on in Nehemiah. Jesus throws them out. He had righteous indignation. That's what I wanted to see, is how often do we get righteously angered over sinful things? Like, angered because it dishonors God, because it brings, because it's unholiness that reflects wrongly the character of God. I mean, what, is, what unholiness makes us angered? Another thing I want you to notice is notice the decisiveness. Notice Nehemiah's decisiveness in this situation. He would have none of the compromise. It's not, well, we can give him a corner. I know he needs a place to lay his head. No, get out. I'm going to throw his junk out on the yard, right? And we th- think of you know, people throwing their boyfriends or girlfriends out, you know, right? Throwing their junk out in the front yard. I'm sure you've seen movies about that, right? No one has any family members like that. Just throw the junk out in the front yard, right? Like, he had not, he was like we're not going to have nothing to do with this, right? Get out! Verse 11, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Nehemiah confronts the officials in their sin. Why have you done this? This is wrong. This is black and white for Nehemiah. But I want us to consider for a second, what do, what do we often get angry about? Many times we're angry probably because our kingdom is being thwarted or our agenda has been changed. How many times are we angered because God's kingdom is being attacked? And then what about our decisiveness? What about our decisiveness? What are the, what are the issues in your life that are very black and white to you? What are those issues that are very black and white? Abortion? Other forms of murder? Rape? I mean, those are probably pretty easy for us to be pretty black and white on. I want us to encourage us to move beyond those pretty obvious things. The Bible is pretty black and white on lots of life. Um, and it's good for us to know these things. Nehemiah knew these things. And Nehemiah knew that this is not right. We're not going to do this. So speaking to the idea of deep convictions, like we know what God's Word says and we do it. And we understand that God doesn't, like, this idea of things are gray. And yeah, yeah, certainly there are some of those things. But I think a lot of times gray is just an excuse for our lack of, of discipline to know and study God's Word. That's really what it comes down to. But just notice a few of those things. I don't want to moralize 
Mr. Nehemiah here, but notice his decisiveness, notice his righteous indignation. Think about what are we, what are we very decisive concerning, and are these the things that God's passionate about, and all the things, are we growing in our decisiveness according to God's word? What is it that angers us and, and, and <clears throat> spurs our affections? The third thing I want us to see so we talk about sin is the problem, and idolatry, expressed in idolatry is the problem. Then conviction and affection for the glory of God is what drives then gospel confrontation. And thirdly, gospel-centered confrontation will always be an assault on our kingdoms. And we just need to know this. Now, we need to be reminded of it tomorrow. We need to be reminded of this in the middle of confrontation. That it will always feel like, it will always be an assault, feel like that on our kingdoms. I just want to quickly address a few things in this passage. First of all, the Sabbath. The Sabbath. So he addresses the Sabbath. They're not keeping the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? I think ultimately the Sabbath is an assault on our self-sufficiency. The Sabbath is what seems to be an assault, or is an assault on our self-sufficiency. Look in verses 15 through 22. So this is where we're going to skip around just a little bit here. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. I warned them on the day that, or I warned them on the day when they sold food. I said the Sabbath was intended to encourage worship of Yahweh. It was, in, it was intended to encourage that the people could not do this on their own, that God was their provider, and that, that they could not work enough to sustain themselves, but they were dependent wholly on God as they took a day of rest. Look at verse 16. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is the evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? As soon as it began to grow dark on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and so on and so forth. And Nehemiah goes on to make provisions to help and set up boundaries to help the people of God not commit this great sin. So the Sabbath, though, confronts, ultimately, I think, our self-sufficiency. It reminds us we need provision outside of ourselves. Spiritual provision, or physical provision at this point, ultimately pointing to spiritual provision that only comes through Jesus. You know, the enemy to enjoying God's presence is the thought that we can somehow get there on our own. And I think ultimately Nehemiah is about God's people living in God's presence. And the enemy to living in God's presence is thinking that we can get there on our own. The Sabbath was meant to remind the people of God that they couldn't get there on their own. Our reminders of our rest in Jesus is meant to be a reminder that we couldn't get there on our own. Nehemiah understood this, church. He understood that he couldn't get there on his own. Look at verse 22b. 
the second part of verse 22. What's he say? Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to what? what? What's it say, church? The greatness of your steadfast love. Spare me according to what? To something outside myself. This is key. Nehemiah understood that he needed something that was not a part of himself. So in the midst, right, in the midst of him setting up these, these rules and putting people at the gates to help guard from unrighteousness and doing all these things that might seem legalistic in nature, he recognizes, though, in the middle of this that he needs something outside of himself, something outside of his heart. Nehemiah knew that he needed provision that could only come from God in order to indwell, or in order to enjoy dwelling with God. All right, so the Sabbath. So clearly, if you think you can get into the presence of God on your own, if you think you can provide for yourself on your own, then when someone comes and says you can't, you can't do that, you can't make it on your own, you can't provide for yourself, that's going to feel a bit like an assault, right? But see how that would be merciful love if indeed someone comes and says, no, you can't make it on your own? Because the reality is you can't make it on your own. And so for someone to let you keep thinking that you can make it on your own, that you can make it to the presence of God on your own, to let them keep thinking that is not to love them, it's to hate them. Nehemiah knew that he needed something outside of himself. We should continue on. I'm going to use up the 20 minutes I didn't use last week if we don't hurry. So Sabbath as an assault. Obviously, I hope you understand it's a good assault, right? And second one, this idea of intermarriage. And I just want us to kind of tie this like with church discipline, right? I want you to see some pictures of church discipline here. Verse 23, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. How about that? That's an assault, right? That's assault. <laughs> All right, so what's happening? What, what's going on? I mean, this is it's pretty awesome. He's, he's, Nehemiah's probably calling down upon them the curses that they just committed themselves to. I mean, physical punishment was prescribed in these kinds of situations. I wonder how many of us would worship our paycheck if you got your hair pulled out on Sunday by Nehemiah. I mean, beatings, I mean, th- think about the prescription of stonings, right? I can't find rocks, I'll just use my hands. I mean, hair pulled out was the idea of public shaming. Right? So, I mean, it's not just, I mean, you have to understand, they... <laughs> Nehemiah probably wasn't just going and walking around, ah, you, ah, pulling your hair out, you know, bam, you know, knocking people out, right? He wasn't doing that. This was probably a public ceremony. We're going to bring these people out, 
and we're going to publicly chastise them for their sin. It's public. They're private. And he says this, going on in verse 25. He says, And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for their sons, or for yourselves. And the reason is, is that did not, king, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. I mean, think about what he's doing. He's, this is a great man, he is saying. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all of Israel. This is a great king. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all the great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashab, the high priest, look what he is. He was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So here's, here's Sanballat comes back in. Therefore, what's he do? Chased him from me. And he says, remember them. Oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So the extent of the problem of intermarriage can be seen in Nehemiah verse 28. And the son and one of the sons, Jehoiada, the son of Eliashab, the high priest. This is the extent. The son of the priest, the son-in-law of Sunbala. Israel's two enemies that had been seen throughout this entire book are both married into the family of the priests. So what's Nehemiah do? He drives them away. He cleanses the people. What's he do? What's he doing? He's removing the unrepentant because they do not belong in the presence of God. Now this is about the presence of God And the means by the covenant for which we can dwell in the presence of God is faith and repentance. Then those who are unrepentant have no place in the presence of God. So he says, get out. Go. He removed them. Now Nehemiah with them does not issue all of God's wrath, but he left room for it to come eventually. And I just want to, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but just think about church discipline. When a church removes someone from fellowship for unrepentance, it's the same thing going on here. What you're saying is that this person who is seemingly unrepentant, even though God is the ultimate judge of that person's life and that person's heart, removing them from fellowship, saying this person is unrepentant and, and an unrepentant person cannot dwell in the presence of God. What is that? What's happening in church discipline? What's happening at this point with Nehemiah? This is merciful love being shown to these people. And merciful love, even in the New Testament sense, when when unrepentant, professing believers are driven from the people of God, it is merciful love saying, you're not living. You do not have the fruit of someone who is on their way to enjoying the presence of God for all of eternity. You have the fruit of someone who's going to be out of the presence of God for all of eternity because you're unrepentant. I think all of this is foreshadowing 
ultimately. So this is what's happening in Nehemiah, where they're being driven from the place where God dwells. In the New Testament, where they're being driven from the mobile temples, the indwelt people of God, is ultimately foreshadowing that the unrepentant people ultimately will be driven from the presence of God forever. This is why confrontation is such merciful love. Because there will come a point where the driven from God's presence, there is no return. Right now, confronting people in sin, both redeemed and unredeemed, there, there's chance for return. There's chance for repentance. There's chance to come back. This merciful love. As if we're not, even each of us who, who probably think that we're redeemed and following God and, and praise God for that and the assurance to come, but if we're not confronted even in our sins, uh, we can become hardened. We can find out one day that we never were followers of God. If our hearts become hardened, we will go to hell. Confrontation is an act of mercy. Silence and what I want to call modern grace is an act of hatred. This grace that says, well, I'm just going to pass over. I'm just not, not going to say anything. Well, certainly, uh, church, I don't want to caveat this all over the place because I've, I've felt the need to all day and all week. But, I mean, obviously, like, there's wisdom, graciousness, love that should surround confrontation, all those things. And we'll talk about a little bit about that in a few minutes. But the idea of just, well, I don't want to, you know, why not? Why not? Are, like, are you not afraid that they could be lost? Are you not afraid that God could give them over to their sin? I mean, what? All right, we should continue. Sabbath as an assault intermarrying, being approached about that idol is an assault. Concern for temple worship. Verse 10. Because I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So here's what happens, okay? They didn't take care of those who led them in temple worship, led them to be right with God. And so what they did was they had to leave the temple so that they could go out to the fields and support themselves. Now here's what happened. If they're not in the temple, then how are the people doing the things to faithfully express their repentance in God? They're not able to. Because the priest had to go do this over here. Guys, understand, not just anyone could walk in and make sacrifices. Not just anyone could take care of those things. The people needed these people. The people at large needed these people in order to be right with God. So they didn't take care of these people. So what they had to do is they had to leave their station and go out and take care of their fields. They had to eat and take care of their families. I think the concern for us that this is where we kind of get into the money, you know, and all that stuff. And, and anytime 
we're trying to build a kingdom. It always involves money, and it's always going to feel like an assault on that money. But I just want to encourage you, don't forsake those who watch over your souls. I think you can apply that very easily yourself. All right. So, come back in here with me. But we want to worship idols fashioned by our hands, ultimately because we want to be worshipped for our kingdom building, right? So we, I think we, they wanted to fashion their own kingdom in the way they wanted to. So they bring in Tobiah, and they do away with the worship of Yahweh. They start spending their money in different ways instead of caring for the priests. And so clearly they have their own plan, their own agenda, their own way in which they want to worship and who they want to worship. But gospel-centered, on the flip side of this, gospel-centered confrontation is motivated by glory of God and the establishment of His kingdom. And this kind of confrontation will always be an assault on our kingdom. That's what I want us to see. Confrontation, so long as we want to build our kingdom, and it's about building God's kingdom, any kind of confrontation to that is going to feel like an assault. But the glorious truth is this. I want you to see this. That gospel-centered confrontation always leads to greater freedom, not greater condemnation. Greater freedom, not greater condemnation. And the Bible clearly says we're already condemned for those who are not in Christ. We don't need any. But the Bible says that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? Nehemiah 13, 11 through 12, he says this, And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. I just, a quick observation here. The difference between condemnation and confrontation, right, because I think we tend to get the two confused, is confrontation is for the good of the other person. Condemnation is for the perceived good of the one doing the condemning. Let me say that again. Condemnation and confrontation, the difference, confrontation is for the good of the other person. Gospel-driven, gospel-centered confrontations for the good of that person. Condemnation is for the perceived good of the one doing the condemning. But Nehemiah, what's Nehemiah do? See, condemnation is like, you're doing this wrong. Go fix it. You're a sinner. We look down on you. What does Nehemiah do, though? Yes, you're sinning. Yes, you need to repent. But what does he do? He helps them to live out faith. He helps them to live out rightly. So I think gospel confrontation leads to greater freedom. What is he leading them to do? To be the people of God. Nehemiah doesn't just point out the sin, but he leads them to make things right. He doesn't just give them commands. He teaches them how to obey. Someone else said something very similar to that. Right? Jesus, Matthew 28. What's he say? Teach them all my commands? To teach them how to obey all that I've commanded. There's a difference. It's not just commanding, which I think we tend to be very, very guilty of. This is what Jesus says, so go do it. Jesus says, teach them how to obey. Teach them how to obey what I've said. That's what we see Nehemiah doing here. He's, he's told them what they need to do, and now he's teaching them how to do it. 
Look at verse 30 and 31. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And he says, remember me, O my God, for good. What does Nehemiah highlight here at the very end? He says, I cleansed them from everything foreign. Condemnation doesn't have the, <clears throat> the point to it of cleansing. But I think gospel-centered confrontation has the idea of cleansing. At least in a broader sense. Like we want to lead people to cleansing. So you help them to rightful worship of God. And this is what the whole book's been about. Church, the whole book, Nehemiah's been about rightful worship of God, people loving God with what? All their heart, soul, minds, and strength. So that what may happen? That God would dwell with His people. You can go read it later, Matthew chapter 7, the first five verses talking about judgment and checking the log in our own eye. Like, we need, desperately need, it's the people of God to remove the logs in our own eyes so that we can go help confront the sin in our brothers' and sisters' lives. So notice here at the end, he cared if God remembered him, right? What does he say at the very end there? Verse 31, remember me, oh my God, for good. And he didn't he cared if God remembered him. I don't think he cared if the people remembered him. His desire was for God ultimately. It was a desire that allowed him to love people rightly. And I think the last thing that we need to see is trust God with the outcome. We can trust God with the outcome. Nehemiah trusted God with the outcome. I'm, just to encourage you, most of our confrontation probably isn't going to involve punching and hair pulling. Okay? I want you to see Nehemiah's trust in the Lord. Look at verse 14. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for His service. I want you to encourage us, church, trust the Lord with the outcome. I think Nehemiah confronted, and then he didn't look back with regret. He entrusted himself to the Lord. He wanted his steadfast, loyal love he had displayed to the Lord to be remembered. You know, I think it's easy for us to think that we have to be the persuader in the situation. Like when we confront people, we think we have to be the one that persuades them of their sin. What is that? It's just an act of not trusting God. Nehemiah trusted God. Here's your sin. Let me lead you to repentance. It's in your hands, Father. The whole thing. I trust you. Guys, it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to be the persuader. Okay? So what do we do then? And you see someone in sin and confront them. And they, they don't, uh, no, no, I'm good. What do you do? You journey with them. You pray for them. You speak the truth in love. Now on the flip side, I think it's also easy for us, if we're the one being confronted, to think that the person needs to be able to persuade us. 
And that's not necessarily the case either, right? You and I don't need good lawyers to prove to us our sinfulness. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal our sinfulness to us. Because a lot of times what we do, well, their case wasn't good enough, so. So like the times that I'm confronted in sin, what I want to be careful to do is that when I walk away, I don't go case closed. I walk away and go, all right, God, if there's something to this, speak this into my heart. Reveal this to me. I don't see it maybe right now. I walk away, not basing all my trust on the other person, but my trust even as a receiver on God. Something else I want to encourage you with, church, is that God's children, God's children will always eventually repent. God's children will. Okay, God will lead His children to repentance. And this may not happen on yours and mine's time schedule. Okay? The response to the confrontation of sin, what happens here? Look in verse 13. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shalemiah, Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padaiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. All of this so that they would prayerfully do what God had commanded. Then look in verses 1 through 3. On that day, Right, so this is verses one through three take place after the rest of the chapter. And listen to what he says. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them, a Balaam to against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Listen to this. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those a foreign descent. What happens? What happens in Israel again? What happens in Jerusalem? Revival breaks out. The, again, I mean, I know this happened like 15 years earlier, but it happened again. The people go, oh gosh, we have sinned. We have done wrong, Father. Forgive us. We want to do what's right. And God continues to grant repentance. I love the fact that they read from the book of Moses and the people were led to repentance. The people saw what they had done and they separated from Israel. They turned from those of foreign descent, turning to the purity of their God. All right, let's land this plane, okay? Follow with me here. There will be a day when confrontation is no longer needed. Amen? Amen? (laughs) Repentance will no longer take place. Until then, the only way we're going to be able to love each other and get along in harmonious, healthy, happy relationships is for us to confront sin and respond in humility and repentance when confronted. I mean, I've, I've, I've been in lots of churches where sin abounds and the only confrontation is when someone chose the wrong color to paint the wall. Right? People get more upset about wearing flip-flops in a worship service than about someone 
sinning and on their way to hell, right? Like, we'd be concerned about the right things. And just because, like, we wear flip-flops on Sundays and, and we don't have, like, some of those other things doesn't mean that we're attentive to and concerned about brothers and sisters who are living in a way that dishonors God that could be leading them to hell. Right? So we should be concerned about these things. We should go to brothers and sisters. But, but again, and again, I, I don't have to caveat all this. In the background, we need to be thinking, checking the log in our own eye, loving, graciousness, tenderness. You know, being gentle with people, being forbearing. Like, one thing for me who tends to be a little more aggressive in this kind of manner, I'm reminded often of God's forbearance with Israel. They sinned, and then He loved them and brought them to repentance, and they sinned, and He loved them and brought them to repentance. He, he did that and did that and did that. You think of Romans 9, and He talks about vessels of wrath. Like, but right before that, He talks about His patience with these vessels built for wrath. Like he's still patient with them. And then the other thing is just being reminded of our own sin is very helpful when we talk about confrontation. But what I want us to see here today, what I, I want to help us, and I think Nehemiah helps us do this, is retool the idea of confrontation. Like our thinking when it comes to that, because confrontation has such a negative connotation in our minds and in our hearts. <gasps> you know, like we all get anxious about it, right? But I want us to see these last two things. Sad. When confrontation is needed, we need to realize, as the giver and the receiver, that it tells the story. God-centered confrontation tells the story of God's continual restoration. I want us to see that. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. Let me read this for us real quick. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So if you don't receive the discipline of the Lord, what does that mean? You're not a son of God. But if you receive the discipline of the Lord, what does it mean? You're a son of God. You're a daughter of the King. You're a child of God. God's confrontation is for your good. It is for your perseverance. I can't wait to talk about that in Ephesians. For your perseverance. It is to help you work out your salvation on your way to glory. Confrontation is for your good. second story that it tells is the story of God's rescue. Confrontation tells the story of God's rescue. Very quickly here, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We'll wait till you all get there because I want you to see these words. Bible drill, so you can get there the quickest. And if you have a device, it's cheating. Verse 21. 
But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, that's a that's like 15 sermons on its own, if you're Lloyd-Jones. I want us to see three things very, very quickly. God confronts our unrighteousness. See our unrighteousness, verse 23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no exceptions. What do we fall short of? The glory of God. We all sin. It, God confronts that sinfulness. This is an assault on our self-righteousness, okay? You've sinned. Your self-righteousness is not good enough. We've all sinned. You've all fallen short. But what does God do? He confronts it with a solution, doesn't He? In verse 25, in the pickup to verse 25, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a what? A propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. See God's rescue confronts us in our sin and rescues us from our sin. How? By putting forward His Son as a payment, as one to absorb all of the punishment due for your sin and for my sin. And then what does God's confrontation lead to? Does that lead to condemnation? Does that lead to shaming, guilting, Does it lead to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? What does it lead to? And are justified by His grace as a what? As a gift. As a gift. What's God do? You're a sinner and hopeless without me. What's He do? He comes in, confronts us in our sin, and and assaults our self-righteousness. And then what does He do? He rescues us from it. He pulls us out of it. He says, look, here's the solution to your problem. It's my son Jesus. And what's he do? Does he give us a bunch of things that we have to do in order to get Jesus? No, he gives it to us as a gift. He gives it to us as a gift. And we have this, we're justified by his grace as a gift. How? How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the payment and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with these thoughts. Confrontation will likely feel like a trial most of the time. Whether you're the one confronting or you're the one being confronted, it will feel like a trial most of the time because we're so fixated on self-righteousness. But I want to encourage you Again, with some words from Jonathan Edwards. He says this, True virtue never appears so lovely as when it is most oppressed. 
and the divine excellency of real Christianity is never exhibited with such advantage as when under the greatest trials. He goes on, They tend to increase its beauty by establishing and confirming it, making it more lively and vigorous, and purifying it from the things that obscured its luster and glory. Confrontation is going to feel like a trial for a time. But if you're a child of God and He leads you to repentance, it will remove the things that obscure the luster and the glory of God's redeeming work in your life. So part of journeying together as a body is confronting each other in sin. Last closing thoughts. Do it in love. Do it with love. If you don't love that person, just keep your mouth shut. Do it in love. But if you do love the person, you will go. Receive it in humility. Expect greater luster of your faith. Do it for His glory. Remember, it paints the picture of the almighty, merciful, and loving God who one day confronted you in your sin and me in my sin and ultimately rescued me and you from the pit of hell. If you're being confronted, are you the one confronting? Like have in the back of your mind, is this a part of God's rescue mission for this person? And if that's not what's driving you, I would say just, just stop. Pray. If something else is driving you, then it's probably not the right thing. If you're driving, thinking, this is, this is part, this is, I want to paint the picture of God rescuing His people. You know, ongoing confrontation of sin, church, is a reminder of that great day when God rescued you and I from sin. Right? You see how? We were headed long stride into hell. Our sin, God confronts us, rescues us from that. And what happens? Now we, we begin to see the cross and we begin to journey with the Father. And then what happens is we start to veer, right? We want to sin. We want to do something else. We want to worship something else. And so that path starts to change. And then confrontation comes in, confronts us in our sin, and by God's mercy grants us repentance and we come back into the path. What is that a reminder of? when we were on this path. It's a reminder that, wow, that's where I was. I don't want to be there. And it should be a reminder of God's great mercy on the day that He sealed you in the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that, I pray that we would, um, that your people today would ultimately see that, um, You've been most merciful to us to confront us in our desperation. Just as you were so mercifully loving to confront your people, the Israelites, once again, after repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and cycle and cycle of faithfulness and sinfulness and repentance and faithfulness and sinfulness and repentance and faithfulness and sinfulness and repentance. and Father, you continue to journey with your people. 
and confront them in their sin and bring them back to you, Father. So, Father, I pray that, that we would begin to see this assault on our self-righteousness and our kingdom building as a good thing. And that we would be reminded of your great confrontation when you rescued us from the pit of hell. When you went long stride after us. And brought us into journey with you, Father and led us to repentance. Father, I just give you praise for that. Father, if there's anyone here today that's, that's not been rescued by you, Father, that they, would, that they would submit their lives, they would throw themselves at your mercy. That they would turn from sin and faith in the goodness and the work of your Son Jesus on the cross. Father, that you would grant that to them. That you would rip their hearts out of darkness and into marvelous light. Father, I pray that you would keep us, those of us who are redeemed, that you would keep us for your good and for your glory. That you would confront us every time we need it. And Father, we give you praise. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.